Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. turn in our Bibles to the second chapter of John's Gospel and to the 13th verse, and we'll read from verse 13 through to the end of the chapter. And you'll find the passage on page 887 of uh, the small print Bibles, and 1054 in the large print although printed in small print in the order of service, which is probably a sign that you need to use the large print if you can't read that. So, John chapter 2 and verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, He found those who were selling oxen, and sheep, and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So, the Jews said to Him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when He was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing. But Jesus, on His part, did not entrust Himself to them, because He knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for He Himself knew what was in man." Well, it's always good to ask, why are we studying this passage? And the answer is twofold. First of all, uh, because I'm preaching three Sundays in February, and this is part of a trilogy that will take us to the end of chapter 3. More significantly, uh, for those of you who can remember last year towards Christmas time, we were looking at the previous section in John's Gospel under the general title of A Week in the Life of Jesus. We've noticed that there are time markers in 
that section in John's Gospel that seem to suggest that what John is portraying here is the first week of our Lord Jesus Christ's further ministry from the age of 30 to perhaps the age of 33. And this uh, section that we're going to study today and in the next couple of Sundays, uh, I'm going to call Jesus' first Passover. Jesus' first Passover. Not because it was the first Passover He attended. Remember how in Luke chapter 2 we're told how His parents took Him to Jerusalem uh, when He was 12 years old, and presumably every year thereafter He had gone to celebrate the Passover in Jerusalem. What I mean by Jesus' first Passover is Jesus' first Passover in His public ministry as the Messiah. The background to this whole section, you may remember, is that Jesus has been baptized. The Holy Spirit has come upon Him. Not that the Spirit was previously absent, but the Spirit is now marking Him out as the Messiah and empowering Him now, for the first time, for a very public ministry. And that public ministry, as you would see in earlier verses, has just recently begun. And in that public ministry, as Messiah, remember how the disciples said to one another, we have found the long-promised Messiah, the Christ, the Anointed One. And now what Jesus is doing is stepping on to the public stage of history and particularly going to the capital city of Jerusalem at the Passover time in order to establish His ministry as Messiah. And it's actually that notion, I think, that joins together the three paragraphs of this section that we're looking at uh, today. Uh, if you're familiar with John's Gospel, you'll know that unlike the other three Gospels, uh, John seems to frame the story of Jesus around visits to Jerusalem. So, there is this visit in chapter 2. There's another visit to a feast, an unidentified feast, perhaps the Passover in chapter 5. There's another visit to the Passover in chapter 6. He goes then in chapter 7 to the Feast of Booths, later on in chapter 10 to the relatively new Feast of Dedication, and His ministry finishes chapter 12 onwards with His final visit to Jerusalem at the Passover time when He presents Himself as the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. So, this is the way in which John frames the ministry of Jesus, going to Jerusalem, retreating from Jerusalem, returning to Jerusalem. And here in chapter 2 to the end of chapter 3, we've got the very first Passover in which Jesus manifests Himself, shows His majesty and His glory. And it begins with a rather unusual incident. Jesus goes into the temple, and with a fairly obvious violence, He makes a whip and he drives out of the temple courts, undoubtedly the outer court of the Gentiles and the women. He drives out 
those who are selling uh, sheep and, and pigeons, and those who are changing money. He drives them out, and he accuses them of turning his own father's house into a marketplace. Uh, we might even uh, retranslate that for our modern sense of reality. You've turned the place of God's worship, the place which the Jews regarded as the center of the earth, the one place on earth where God had promised to show His face to His people in a special way. And they had turned this place, says Jesus, into a supermarket to sell their wares. And it's a very dramatic moment. It's, uh, it's reminiscent of the action of some of the physical actions of the prophets. This is an action that carries a message. And if you're familiar with the Synoptic Gospels or read commentaries and other books on the Gospels, you'll know that it has presented a problem to some readers because the other Gospels record a similar event, but it takes place right at the end of the Gospels, in the last Passover. So some people have wondered, is, is John just putting this at the beginning because he wants to send a message at the beginning rather than at the end? I suppose that is at least conceivable. It seems to me far more likely from the differences in the descriptions that Jesus did this twice. Curious thing to me is that many scholars have suggested he couldn't possibly have done this twice. And uh, it seems to me to be far more surprising that he didn't actually do it frequently. Because when the cat is away, the ecclesiastical mice will play. And I have very little doubt that perhaps even within hours, certainly by the time of the next feast, exactly the same thing was happening in the temple courtyard. And so, if there is anything surprising, the surprising thing is that Jesus did it only twice. And the reason He did it only twice was because He wanted to send very important signals about His own identity and about the needs of the people to whom He had come to minister. And that's the story of these three paragraphs. I think maybe the best way to think about these paragraphs, they seem somehow or another related, although they are very different from one another, the driving out of the merchants, the discussion with the Jews about what sign will Jesus give them that He has authority to do this, and then this comment about people believing in Him, but literally Jesus not believing in them very interesting way that uh, John records this. They believed in Him. They trusted in Him, but He didn't entrust Himself to them. And maybe the best way to think about these three paragraphs is like one of these medieval altar pieces, these uh, triptychs, three panels, usually the middle one being the most significant but it kind of leaves a visual puzzle for you. What is the connection that unites these three different scenes? And I think the connection here is that Jesus is presenting Himself 
in these three paragraphs as the Messiah. Uh, you know that Christ, Messiah, uh, mean the same thing, the Anointed One. And I'm sure most of us also know that in the Old Testament Scriptures, there were three particular individuals who were anointed for the service of God. So, the prophet was anointed. Remember Elijah anointing Elisha. And the priest was anointed with a very special oil. And the king was anointed. And these were all three ways in which God dealt with His people through mediators, always intended to point forward to the fact that there would come one mediator between God and man who would combine all of these ministries, all of these offices. He would be the prophet who would speak for God. He would be the priest who would bring people really into God's presence. He would be the king who would reign over them. And since Jesus has been anointed, He's been Christed. He is the Messiah. It's very interesting, I think, that the first thing He does in Jerusalem is in these different ways to show that He really is the Messiah and He really is the Savior. Indeed, not only so, but He is the long-promised Messiah, as we were singing. And He is, in fact, the only Savior. And there's also background music here. Various passages from the Old Testament seem to be playing in the background. Perhaps the most obvious one is from uh, the third chapter of the book of Malachi. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly return to His temple. And if you're not familiar with those words, you're almost certainly familiar with the words that follow from Handel's Messiah, that when He comes, it will feel as though there is a refiner's fire breaking out in that temple. And it's interesting that uh, probably about two-fifths of the book of Malachi focuses on the failure of the priests God had appointed to serve Him properly in the temple. That's really the significance of Jesus driving out these money changers. He's presenting Himself as the true priest who has come to cleanse and sanctify the temple of God. And so, He rids the court, the outer court of the temple, of those who are selling their animals and their birds and are sitting there at the exchange of uh, coinage, a bit like the people who sit behind a glass front in the airport. And actually, all of those things were completely legitimate. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch that we read about in Acts chapter 8. He's come maybe from Addis Ababa or somewhere around there, 2,000 miles on a chariot, and he's going to the Passover. You don't expect him to have brought a spotless lamb and sat beside it for 2,000 miles, believing it would still be a spotless lamb and sacrificable at the Passover time. No, they came to Jerusalem, and there was this facility for them to purchase the lamb 
that would be sacrificed at the Passover time, and because they used a a certain coinage in the temple, it was completely legitimate that there would be an exchange rate mechanism. And yes, completely legitimate that somewhere along the line, those who were engaged in this business uh, would not impoverish themselves in the process. That was not the problem. The problem was that this that had begun over on the Mount of Olives had now been brought into the temple courts. And this is the the gravamen of Jesus' charge. You are turning my Father's house into a supermarket. Not so much, perhaps, that they were profiteering. Not so much a sense of that as the disgrace which fell at the door of the high priests and the other priests whose whole calling was to minister in this place on behalf of God's people, to guard and tend the temple from time immemorial. That had been their calling, and they had permitted a supermarket approach to worship to the Passover here in particular. Um, I think that tells us something about worship, doesn't it? Um, That what had happened, I'm pretty sure it happened very subtly, that someone had come along with the bright idea, you know, it would, make like a, it would make life an awful lot easier if we didn't have to go to the Mount of Olives, uh, if we didn't have to go down the street to the, uh, to the bank and uh, deal with the exchange rate mechanism. It would be so more, much more convenient for people, and, and there would be some people who would get irritated, but they would get over it, and eventually we would actually come to like it this way eventually come to like it this way. And that's certainly a very, very, very solemn warning to the church in every age. You know, when the Protestant Reformation took place, the Protestant Reformers said this is about two things. It's about the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's about worship. And it's the second of these that's the most important because that's what the first is for. And it seems to me, just in passing, that we have a repetition of this again, again, again in the story of the Christian church, that what drives even our styles of worship will be the answer to the question, what will work most conveniently? and what do we prefer? Uh, Perhaps a a parable of that is that I would say for the first 20 years of my Christian life, I don't know I was ever at a service in a church that did not begin with the same four words, let us worship God. Now, those words are not sacrosanct, 
But the principle is, and there is enshrined in this passage a devastating critique of the 21st century church, where our churches can be driven by what works, what do we like, and what is going to make things easiest for us, because we like them. And the whole raison d'etre of the temple of our worship, let us worship God, what will He like, is almost a kind of irritating question to us, because it's not what He likes, but what we like. Now, you'll be glad that I'll say no more about this, because it's not actually the main point, I think, in this passage, but it is an important point, isn't it? When you, if you can just envisage Jesus and see this is all about how His heavenly Father is worshipped, if you can just sense the tension in the situation, then I think you do get a sense of how really important it is to the disciples of Jesus that Jesus is passionate, zealous, jealous about the worship of God. And actually, that's the main point here. It's not to look at these uh, poor guys being chased out of the temple. What a, what a thing this must have been. I'm sure there were people in the background giving each other high fives as they watched this. But it's, it's okay, look at what Jesus is like here. What, what came to mind for the disciples, and we'll return to this text, was a verse from Psalm 69, zeal for your house has consumed me. Jealousy. Of course, jealousy. What if, what if we were to engage in conversation and uh, deliberately after the service I said something really mean and despicable about your wife, your mother, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, David Gibson. <laughs> Would you not feel a, a right jealousy arising in you? That one you loved with your whole being was being besmirched and demeaned and treated in this way? Now, that's the picture of Jesus that we're given here, the picture of the zealous Jesus, the jealous Jesus, the Jesus who has a, a fierce, fierce love, a violent love. There are hardly any great Scottish theologians uh, in the first thousand years of the Christian church's history and the ones who were all left Scotland and went somewhere else. One of them was a man by the name of Richard of St. Victor, uh, who lived and worked in Paris most of his life. And he used to speak about violent love, violent love, love that cannot tolerate the object of that love being demeaned or besmirched. And that's why Jesus is presenting Himself here as the, as the priest, the Lord, who suddenly comes to the temple, cleanses it. Because at the end of the day, the whole reason He has come into the world is that so that His heavenly Father 
will be worshipped aright. And that's why he's going to die. The reason he wants our sins to be forgiven is not just that we'll be forgiven sinners, but because it's only forgiven sinners who'd come to the Heavenly Father and worship him aright. But we move on to the second section. The second section is where Jesus is challenged. And when Jesus is challenged as the priest who has cleansed the temple, he, I think, now presents himself as the king who's going to erect a new temple. In the history of God's people, it was always kings who erected temples. And Jesus, as they criticize him and say, what sign, what sign are you doing that's going to prove that you have the right to do this? which is um, hypocritical, really. Um, Later on in the passage, we know Jesus did signs. Nicodemus, who comes to him uh, while he's he's in Jerusalem, says, we know you must be a teacher sent from God because you would never be able to do these signs otherwise. There were signs in abundance. You didn't need any signs. So, what sign are you going to do? What sign will you give us? Same question that was asked later, and He said, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah, who died, as it were, in the belly of the great fish, and three days later was raised again by the power of God. And he puts it actually, in a sense, even more clearly here. He says, destroy this temple, and three days I will rebuild it. They didn't understand. Their eyes were blind. It's actually crystal clear what he was saying. He was speaking, as John tells us, about his own body. He was saying, the sign you will be given is the sign of my death and my resurrection. That's, that's going to be the great sign. But what I find interesting is this. Um, Jesus doesn't say, if you destroy this temple, I will build it again in three days. He uses the imperative. That's like telling you to do something. From one point of view, it's really very strange. It's as though he's saying, you destroy this temple. Um, You destroy this temple. Not just if you destroy this temple, but you are going to destroy this temple. And I am going to raise it up in three days. And later on, obviously, they, they remembered, the disciples remembered that Jesus had said this, and he had, he had made it so clear that these temples that had been built, the temple built by Solomon, the more recent temple that had been built by Herod, were just kind of like pop-up picture book versions of the real temple, that the place where we can really meet with God where our sins can really be forgiven is not a building, but it's this person. And what's going to make it possible is not Passover lambs or, or sacrifices on the Day of Atonement, but this one sacrifice. He'll be put to death for our sins, and He'll be raised again for our justification. This one is the real temple and Jesus is making it clear. The one place now where you can get to know God, have access into His presence, know that your sins are forgiven, begin a new life, live for His glory, is in this temple. 
that is to say, in me. And it's a very interesting thing, isn't it, that in verse 22, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Well, what Scripture? Well, interesting, it's this Scripture back earlier in the passage in verse 17, zeal for your house will consume me. I think just reading that, the most natural way to interpret these words is, Jesus is saying, I'm going to be consumed with zeal for God and His glory. But that is not, I think, what they mean. They come from the 69th Psalm. I'd be really impressed, even in this congregation, if the majority of us immediately thought, yes, of course, the 69th Psalm. It ain't Psalm 23, it ain't Psalm 51, it ain't Psalm 100, it ain't Psalm 103. But interestingly, it is the psalm that is most frequently alluded to or cited by the apostles in connection with the death of Jesus. No psalm is more frequently alluded to in connection with what Jesus did on the cross for us and in His resurrection than Psalm 69. And what Jesus is saying here is not, although it's true, I'll be overwhelmed with zeal for God's glory. It is that this zeal is going to lead to me being consumed, sacrificed, suffering, dying, and then rising. So it's not just that He is God's final temple, the, the dwelling place of God, God tabernacling among us, as John had said earlier in his gospel. God dwelling with us so that we can know Him in and through the person of Jesus Christ. It is that the way of access is going to be a way of His sacrifice for our sins, His coming under divine judgment, His being abused at the hands of men and women, Him being the final Passover lamb, the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. And it's a wonderful, wonderful thing to then take all this together and understand that what Jesus is saying is that the way He's going to erect the new temple in which we will be able to meet with God is Himself, Jesus Christ, and Him crucified. As David said earlier, it's, it's before our eyes, isn't it? It's by what all of this points to. It's the Jesus who gives these things to us today, whose zeal for God's glory and our salvation led to Him being consumed and then gloriously to Him being raised again. So Jesus presents Himself as the priest. Jesus presents Himself as the King. And yes, of course, thirdly and more briefly, Jesus presents Himself to us here as the prophet. And I think this is really the meaning of that strange little section at the end. Many believed in His name when they saw the signs He was doing, but Jesus on His part didn't believe in them, didn't entrust Himself to them 
because he knew all people. He knew what was in them. So if he's the priest who cleanses the temple, the king who erects the new temple, he's also the prophet who sees those who really belong to that new temple. You know, in the Old Testament, there are several different words for prophet. One of them means seer, S-E-E-R, someone who sees. Not just someone who forth foretells the future, or even just foretells the Word of God, but who discerns, who sees, who penetrates. And much of the prophets are like this, aren't they? The books of the prophets, they're seeing right into the hearts of the people. That's not least true in Malachi. Malachi is saying, look, you're weary in God, and they're saying, how are we weary in God? We're not weary in God. You see, the problem is if you're weary in God, you're not likely to notice that you're weary in God. If you're despising God, you're not likely to notice that you're despising God for the very reason you are despising Him. And this is what this little section at the end is all about. It's about Jesus the prophet who not only foresees the future, but actually sees right into the depth of the human heart. Who, who breaks through, as Hebrews says, right through joints and marrow and uh, like, a, like a sharp surgeon's scalpel opens up the inner secrets of men's hearts. And here are people who say they believe in Him, but they believe in Him because they've been impressed by His power. They haven't come to entrust themselves to His person. It's not the only passage in Scripture that speaks this way. Remember the end of the Sermon on the Mount? It's staggering. Think about people you've seen on television casting out demons in Jesus' name, and Jesus says, depart from me. Do you remember the words that follow? Because I never knew you. That's not language we use very much as Christians, I don't think. We use language of, I have come to know Christ. We very rarely even think about the question. But in my coming to know Him, has that been the coming to know Him of a kind in which He has also come to know me? That is to say, where all I am, all I have, everything that is hidden from others, I recognize is known and seen by Him. And because that's true, not only is it appropriate for me to say, Lord Jesus, I trust you, but it's altogether appropriate for Jesus to say to me, and I entrust myself to you. And the whole point is, he, he can't entrust himself to us. As long as there are these hidden barriers and reservations, those closed doors in our lives. When we come to Him, and not quite believing when we sing, nothing in my hand I bring. Because we're bringing a lot of things in our hands. And we're like little children. His grip is very tight, usually behind our back, when the other hand is open and we say, you can have it all. And uh, 
when the Lord Jesus deals with us, He is like what our Father was with us, at least mine was, when He was stronger than I was, was to take that hand and prize it open. And there, lying in the hand, was the hidden secret, the thing I was keeping to myself. And that's what this is about. Jesus not entrusting Himself to us because we are not unreservedly trusting in Him, believing because of the the great things we have seen. And there are great things to see today, too. But not entrusting ourselves to Him in the sense that we say, as by God's grace we will be able to say in a few minutes, here, Lord, I give myself away is all that I can do. So, here are three ways to think about the Lord Jesus as our minds so easily wander at the Lord's Supper. We even think, what am I supposed to think about here? He is the priest who is jealous to bring you into the presence of God. He wants nothing more. He died for that. He is also the king who has erected the only temple in which you can meet with God. There is no other name given under heaven among men by which you can be saved. And he's the prophet who sees right into your hearts, thankfully in a way no one else knows, your dearest beside you does not know your heart the way he knows you. And as in these moments the bread is brought to us, as the gospel is offered to us, and with empty hands we take the bread and the wine, with open mouths we eat and drink. It's all another enacted drama, not of Jesus cleansing the temple, but the Lord whom we do seek coming to the temple and saying to us, come to me unreservedly and I will be everything to you. So, let us come and take and yield.